victorious over death and sin and Satan, even over the wrath of God. You were victorious and now are raised to a place of preeminence and sovereignty, uh, the highest of all ranks in heaven, and you sit at the right hand of the Father and you intercede for us and you work for us our salvation. Lord, our salvation is secure in you and we have confident expectation that we will be rescued from sin completely and fully entering into glory one day, Lord, we have confident expectation to spend eternity with you. And Lord, we are grateful because all of this work has been done on the cross of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, as we meditate on your word and consider how the word of God pulls together from the beginning of the Old Testament to the Psalms and then across the Hebrews, Lord, I pray that the importance of being part of fellowship would be impressed on our heart and mind and the result be that we find communion and belonging here in a way that nurtures our faith and our trust and our hope in you. Lord, um, the work has been done. It is finished. We sang confidently to each other and declaring that truth. The work is finished. Now what's left, Lord, is for us to remain, remain faithful, trusting, dependent upon you, Lord, believing not marked by unbelief, but marked by belief, a, a leaning, a, a dependency upon the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross for us. So, Lord, take your word, Lord, and drive it deep into our hearts, and may our thoughts there be pleasing to you, and the result be that many are grown in their faith. Maybe somebody today might initiate the beginning part of a relationship with you and expressing their faith to you for the first time. So this is the potential of the next moments, Lord, I commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. And as you are turning there, I just want to mention we're in the, the early parts of a, well, middle right now, middle of a new series at our church that is dealing with the aspects of community because on the 3rd of March, we're going to be launching our new revised and refreshed life group model here at KBC. We had a wonderful weekend together recently with all the leaders and all the hosts of life group. We're hoping to birth a few more life groups. And when I talk about life groups, I'm essentially speaking about the concepts of small group but with a little bit of a twist. Um, there's a new kind of revised model that we are launching here which involves doing life together. That's why the series is called Better Together. It's more than just Bible study and it's more than just fellowship more than just hanging out as Christians, um, it's growing and doing service and um, doing life together in community. And I'm hoping that this text, Hebrews chapter 3, will impress on you the essential need we have to belong and to be continually um, spurred on in our Christian faith. We need each other in this journey. Can't do Christianity in isolation or solo. And uh, I, I think that this passage here is going to do the trick in convincing our minds that we need each other in this journey to become like Christ and ultimately to be saved, uh, to finish the race. Um, we need each other. So let's, um, let's, let, let me introduce it this way, and then I'll get to reading the text in a moment. I don't think I've forgotten the Bible. I'm going to get there in just a second. Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 7 through to about 19 or so, but uh, let me introduce it this way. God delivers, or may I say God delivered, God is the deliverer. And this idea of God is made very, very specific in the early parts of Scripture where God's people are freed from slavery, if you remember. 
slavery in Egypt, they are freed, and we are all first witnesses, first-hand witnesses of that. We read the scriptural historic account of this occasion, and the power of God made manifest in 10 plagues and a Passover, um, that whole miracle of Passover and all that deep truths there for us in the gospel, the crossing of the Red Sea, miraculous splitting of the ocean, and the people of God walking over on dry land, God the deliverer. And then mixed into that account, there is God the carer or God the compassionate. And we read of um, every need of the children of Israel being met. And we think of the little details, I mean, manna from heaven and water from a rock to drink and shoes for their feet, all of these details are provided by God the compassionate. Then we also see mixed into this account, God the promiser, God the one who promises and he's fulfilled his promise, so we say God promised and has come through in his promises, Canaan, the the promised land on the horizon for the children of Israel to enjoy. The people had more than enough evidence to put their trust and their faith in God fully. God never let them down once. Um, The track record is perfect in His providence in every possible situation for the children of Israel. Yet, they are not freed from Egypt long, and they begin to grumble. And that's a famous grumble in in the Bible that kind of runs through the narrative of the children of Israel, the specific people of God in the Old Testament. It's labeled sometimes as a nagging, this nagging that begins and it's a a murmur in the background. And there are crescendos in this nag and then there are decrescendos in the nag. But at the crescendo of the nag, we always notice something, that the children of Israel are living at a peak of unbelief in their heart. An all-time high unbelief in their heart led to crescendos in this murmur or grumble. God was provoked. God can be pushed so far. I mean, we we push him to the max, I believe, in society today, um, even with our own behavior and our own thought processes and own motivations. But God is provoked, and instead of entering into the promised land, which was promised by God, they remained at Kadesh Barnea for 38 years. And Deuteronomy chapter 2 gives us that account. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until crossing the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp and God, as God had sworn to them. So there was a punishment of this generation being wiped out. Now, what has that got to do with Hebrews chapter 3? It has everything to do with Hebrews chapter 3. See, the text in Hebrews 3 teaches us that they forfeited blessing on this occasion. We don't get those details in the Exodus narrative. But we learn in Hebrews 3 that the children of God forfeited blessings because of their disobedience, their unfaithfulness, their unbelief of heart. That's what's behind all the happenings of the narrative in Exodus. They would not listen to God's word. They would not yield to his will. They would not learn his truth. And so so they forfeited various blessings. Two of them are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 3. Grace and rest were forfeited because of their unbelief. Then, a later generation, you must say, well, how? I mean, I don't see any like, reference to Exodus in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 3. Well, there's a bit of a runaround in the Bible to find out why the two are connected. And that comes in Psalm 95. So bear with me here. Take some notes. Line these things up. Look at the footnotes of your Bible here in Hebrews chapter 3, and you'll see Psalm 95 there. Because there's a quote. Most of the text I'm going to read 
is a quote of Psalm 95. Now, why? Well, a later generation was warned not to behave like those of Kadesh Barnea, not to exist in unbelief and then forfeit the grace and the rest of God. Don't do the same as your ancestors have done, but rather listen to God. And that wording, that warning comes from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your heart. So we're dealing with heart issues here. Don't harden your heart as at Meribah, as on the day of Master in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, and there was no, no possible excuse to be given, my track record was perfect, my work was perfect, my providence for you was perfect, my, my promise for you was perfect, all of these things were good. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. And I'm trying to stress the word heart because it really is an important thread of our text for today, the hardening of one's heart. They were led astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they will never enter my rest. So the psalmist is starting to highlight what those particular blessings of God that were forfeited were. And it's mentioned there as rest. So the psalm now is taken by the author of Hebrews, we don't know who that is, and a warning is given to his audience that we can apply directly to ourselves today. Wow, it's quite an introduction, isn't it? So starting Exodus, wrap around the Psalms, notice that the author of Hebrews uses the Psalms to speak to us directly with these principles. I have to say this by way of introduction because if we don't, we're going to say, well, this doesn't matter for us. We're not the people of Israel. We're not God's you know, chosen nation of the Old Testament, so that doesn't apply. It applies directly to us, directly to us. So let me read the passage for us from verse 7 of Hebrews 3. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, here's the quote from Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my words for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they are always going astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I sworn my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Now, here's some more additional information for us. Take care, brothers. Listen, KBC, church, family. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's the point that the author makes. Take care. And I hope you're listening carefully because we need to take care about this. But rather, so there's a, there's a warning to take care, then there's some more positive practice given. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin or the lies of sin. For, and here's a reason given, we share in Christ. No longer enslaved to sin, we, are, we share in Jesus. And then how do we know that we share in Jesus? Well, the proof of it is given right now. If, indeed, we hold to the original confession firm to the end. Our original confession is Jesus is Lord. I put my trust and my confession in Him. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is how the New Testament explains it. As it is said, from the psalm, repeat it again because it's important, today, making a connection there between the everyday and the today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I'm going to read the next few verses as well. Four. 
Whom were those who heard yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Second question. And whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness and the whole generation was wiped out? Third question. And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? A synonym for the unbelief that is described a little bit earlier in verse 12. Unbelief, disobedience, rebellion, sin, all of these things are are synonyms in the Bible for the opposite of faith. And they're all given in one passage for us to learn. Hey guys, you can't squeak around the terms. The terms all line up to say the opposite of obedience is disobedience. The opposite of being Lord is to rebel against that Lord. The opposite of belief would be an unbelieving heart. So we are at, we see that they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. And of course, the mention there, of course, is of glory too for us now, entering our promised land, which would be with the Lord in heaven forever. So now keep your Bible open there. And let's draw a little bit of a conclusion here from the warning that is given. I want to unpack the warning for us to look at and um, draw a few conclusions of why this is important for life group. Number one, we all have a dangerous heart condition. We all have a dangerous heart condition. And I'm going to give it to you right now. Give the diagnosis of your heart. One word, unbelief. Unbelief. So I put it in the point there um, for you to look at. We all have a dangerous heart condition and it is unbelief. That's the point you can take home with you. Let me prove it to you. We are all in danger. We, I want to call it, uh, I've tried to think of a nice way of describing what this danger is. I call it the danger of drifting, the danger of drifting. We all know people like this. They've been in the church for a long time and claim to be Christians, do the right thing, and then suddenly they're off the map. You know what I'm talking about? Get cold toward the things of God, and then suddenly off the rails, and there's no desire to follow the Lord any longer. We, we start to wonder, like, did they lose their faith? Because at one time, they claimed, they professed to be believers, maybe even got baptized, professing outwardly in that drama that they are followers of Jesus. Now they've drifted away, the danger of drifting, and we are all in that place. We mustn't point fingers. This text explains very carefully, by way of a warning, watch out, watch out. You're in the danger of drifting, and it's a heart condition. It's caused by a heart problem. I'm not talking about the pump. I'm talking about the inner part of a human being, the affections of the soul. That's the issue. Warren Wiersbe said, the heart of every problem, at the heart of every problem, is a problem of the heart. And I like that little phrase catchy. At the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart, and this is definitely going to be seen in this text. There are passages that make clear that God will keep His children faithful to the end. And I want to just mention those right now, because some of you might be thinking, well, if I'm in the danger of drifting, should I be like paranoid? Should I be terrified about falling off the faith wagon? Well, let me just reassure you with a couple of scriptures here. John chapter 10. These are famous, by the way. John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Remember this passage? It's famous. No one's going to take you out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, talking about the believers, is greater than all, so He's sovereign and you know, supreme and excellent, and no one is able, there's no one, not the devil or anyone else, that is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. 
One of the famous verses of the New Testament that describe the perseverance of believers to the end. And I'm sure of this, Paul says, not guessing, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Not you, you're not bringing the work to completion. God is doing the work to bring the initial stages of your salvation to the end at the day of Jesus, and that's talking about judgment day there. So we tremble in our boots. We think, you know, yeah, I'm going to face God one day, you know, am I going to make it to the end? And we grab that verse and we cling tight to that verse and we say, I'm going to make it because he who began this work is going to carry it on to completion. But I know you're thinking, geez, pastor, come on, man, you give us this hope and then you kind of tear it apart. But listen to the, the warning. Listen to the advice of the author of Hebrews. He joins Peter, for example, and he says this, like Peter, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. So now we're looking at, at Philippians and saying that first initial, initial stage, God's going to bring it to completion. So what Peter and author of Hebrews are saying is make sure this first stage is in place. If it is, you'll make it to the end. But if this is not in place, you're not on this trajectory to glory in the first place. So he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And Peter goes on to explain what that looks like. All the evidences and the fruits of what it means to be a saint or a saved individual on the trajectory to being glorified one day to heaven. So let me explain it theologically for you. All those texts kind of mulled around in your mind. I want to say this. Genuine conversion is proved by only one thing. Climatically, there are little things along the way, but there's one climatic thing that is mentioned in the Bible as a proof of genuine conversion, and it is faith to the end. Perseverance. It's mentioned over and over and over in the Bible. New birth is proven by a persistence in our faith. So we don't get a ticket to heaven one day and then just live like we want to live. In, in, in that kind of living, there's no diligence to confirm your faith. There's no pressing on. There's no taking care. There's, no ta there's carelessness in that approach to your salvation. Well, I, you know, I went to church for Sunday school as a kid one day and I accepted the Lord Jesus as my Savior. I'm hooked. I'm good. And God will do the rest of the work so I can just sit on the couch and He'll do the rest of the work and take me to completion and all that kind of thing. No, no, no. That is not the fruit of faith that is mentioned here in the Bible. We need to run well, the Bible says. Not just chill out well. That's what the Bible would say otherwise. You know, God's done the work for you. It is finished. We sing on a Sunday morning and then just chill out on the couch and then read the Bible to say, just relax. Everything's taken care of. Um, we'll make sure you arrive. No, no, no. The Bible speaks of running and finishing well. So church, I want to tell you, sin is aggressive. Be warned. Sin is aggressive, sin is active, and sin is very, very powerful. You can't mess with it. Because this author's all saying, be diligent, take care, run, persist, endure. That's what the Bible's telling us. It's a massive warning to believers to take action because of what sin is. It must be resisted, and it must be resisted to the end. It's the biggest fight that we fight. It's the biggest war going on, is the war in your heart for affections. Am I going to buckle to what sin is promising to be something I will find pleasure in and love? And my heart suddenly, ooh, I love that thing a little bit more than God, or I'm going to, you know, 
lean from the, the, the rules of God just a little bit because, you know, this thing or this person or this experience, you know, is stealing some of my affection, or am I going to fight and battle against it? We've got to describe the, the diagnosis, we've got to describe the dangerous heart condition before we look to the solution in just a minute. There are only two points for this morning. So let's hear the author very carefully. He says that we have come to share in Christ. So I need to pause there for a moment. I did. I landed again, you know, um, in this Bible of mine, noticing a few things just over the weekend even. And that really is a, there's a few little wedges in this text that are unusual things to say. Verse 14 is one of those things. We share in Christ. And when I read those words a long time ago, it reminded me of the life group thing. That, that, that's the place where we do the sharing. Words like exhorting one another. And the every day got my attention because I noticed a lot of Christians just do the once a week thing. So where do I get in church life the everyday exhorting, the everyday encouragement, the everyday spur on to you know, continue in Christ, to share in Christ? And it dawned on me, life group's the place to find that. I'll talk about that a bit later. The author is saying here, we share in Christ, verse 14, which is the opposite of living in unbelief or having a hardened, unbelieving heart. And then he describes what it means to share in Jesus, to be actually a part of those that will ultimately make it to the end and be glorified in heaven. And he mentions it in three little phrases that are connected in one sentence. We hold on to our original confidence to the end is the description of a person who shares in faith. Now, if we abandon our faith, which many have done through the centuries, we abandon our confidence, we abandon our hope, which was described in that song, or like we would say casually, we turn away. We show that we were never genuinely sharers in Christ in the beginning. So the author of Hebrews is saying and explaining. D.A. Carson, who's one of my favorite New Testament scholars, explains it this way. Faith is not a good work that we perform. And for some of you this morning, you might be viewing your faith as that. My faith is a good work I perform, so I'm going to do this, go to church. I'm going to do this, share my faith. I'm going to do this, join a life group. I'm going to do this, give money. I'm going to do this, read my Bible and pray. And this goes on and on and on. The Bible doesn't explain that at all. Faith is not a good work that we perform, but a means by which we do these things that Hebrews is telling us, holding fast to the promises of God. Faith is the means by which we remain in relationship with God by the means that have been given possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. Of course, no Jesus, no faith possible, but there's been a way made for sinners to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, and faith becomes the means by which we remain in that relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. So, what am I saying? Well, it's not me. I've got nothing to say. But the author of Hebrews has got a few things to say. And what he is saying is this. Constant vigilance is needed because of our heart condition. It's a lovely analogy, really, uh, that I've chosen here. I think to think of, you know, the diagnosis you would receive from a doctor and then suddenly action that needs to be taken place. And if somebody gets diagnosed with diabetes, what do they do? They change their diet. Somebody has a you know, minor heart, some murmur or something, and the doctor says, listen, you've got to start exercising more regularly and stop eating lamb. And they do that. They take action. And that's what the author is saying here. Hold on. You've got a heart condition. I'm not picking on you. I'm saying we've all got a heart condition. 
And we need to take action. And the action is constant vigilance. That none of you may be hardened. Is what the passage says. If you harden your hearts against the word of God, verse 8, sin will have its way and you will end up hardened, verse 13. I don't know if you noticed that the word is repeated again. 8 and 13. For us to get the point. Folks, be warned. We all have a dangerous heart condition and that heart condition is unbelief. Praise the Lord. That's not the end of the sermon. There is a number two. We all need an antidote and there is one. We all need an antidote. And the antidote that's given in this passage is each other. So we're looking beyond the, the core things of our salvation. We share in Jesus, and that can be proved by our perseverance. But what action am I going to take? And here it comes. Each other needs to be nurtured. The each other. And I, again, I want to refer you to that phrase. Exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day. I wonder if that's the Christianity you're enjoying. I wonder if that's the community that you are enjoying at the moment. Let's evaluate that as I look at what it means. We need encouragement and the encouragement of others. Of course, we're going to get the encouragement we need from God's Word. But this author is saying, hey, even after God's Word has been established in the book so far as a, as a primary source of authority and guidance and all the rest, encouragement, the author is saying we need this encouragement from others daily. I didn't put that word in the Bible, but there it is, every day. I've put big circles around it, because I realized now suddenly, my Christianity needs to go beyond just a Sunday. I need this kind of encouragement daily. And I'm not talking about a slap on the back, or, or a cheer, yeah, you go, you go. I'm not talking about that kind of surface level, superficial thing. We need scriptural encouragement every day, is what the author is saying in context here. And we get that from formal gatherings. Hebrews chapter 10 is one of the most famous passages about it. Don't forget the gathering together of the saints. Don't forsake that. Come together and gather formally, and I'll talk more about that next Sunday. But what the focus is of this text is the informal. The informal hanging out with each other and gaining in fellowship is what this text is speaking about. Not tea and coffee. You know, we say often, yes, stay for tea and coffee, and we say we'll have, we enjoy fellowship there. But the tea and coffee is not going to bring any kind of fellowship at all. I mean, we could just be joking about ruggy. But when we are together as believers, whether it be tea or coffee or a bra or other fellowship around the word, take that opportunity, the author is saying, to encourage by means of Scripture. So may I just say this as an aside. I'm just going to jump out of the sermon for a minute and just say, we need to be preparing for Sunday. We do. We don't come to, to Sunday to gain, according to this text. We come to give. And so Saturday night would be a good time for us to sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to see so-and-so tomorrow. And I know that they're going through a bit of a rough time. And I've been reading in my quiet time these few verses, and they've, they slap on the, the money in terms of what this person needs. So I'm going to just take these few verses, write them on a card, see them at church, give them a hug and say, here's some encouragement for you from the Word, fellowship in the Word from you. We need to prepare for that church. Baptists don't do well at this. Charismatics do way, way better than we do. But to actually take what we are gaining from Scripture and use that in our encouragement, preparation, to be together and not take advantage of the informal times we have together. For right now, the, the, the biggest opportunity we have is right now, this hour, this worship hour on a Sunday morning, when our church is together the most. And we're hoping that life group will take over that. We're hoping that the stat will change in the next little while where life groups will become larger and bigger than even our formal gathering. That's our prayer for our church. Last week, we talked about pers 
participation in the word and participation in fellowship. I'm not going to rehash that again, but that's what the text is talking about. You can't do Christianity alone. You can't do it in isolation. F.F. Bruce, famous scholar of the Bible, says this, we are more liable to succumb to the subtle temptations that press on us. But if we come together regularly for mutual encouragement, the devotion of all will be kept warm like a fire stoked. That's what F.F. Bruce is saying here in light of this passage. Our common hope, that we're saying about living hope, our common hope would be in less danger of flickering and dying. And I think he's per- that's a perfect quote to include in the sermon, referring back to the danger of our heart condition of unbelief. Our common hope would be in less danger of flickering, flickering and dying if our devotion is kept warm by a mutual encouragement. Now, why is it so important? Sin is deceitful. Verse 13, check it out. What does deceitful mean? I mentioned it when I read. Deceitful here in the Greek means liar. Sin's a liar. And we've all been hoodwinked by sin. Every single one of us. There isn't a person breathing that has not been hoodwinked by the lies of sin. It has such brilliant arguments. I, I penned a few down, maybe to you know, touch a nerve. What are some of the, the lies that have been used in your own mind and heart by sin? Here's a few. You know, it's not that bad to disobey God in a few things. Ever had sin preach that lie to you? I, I, you know, 90% of my Christian life, I'm obeying, but there's this little like 10. If I, if I mess up there, I'm sure 90 will cover, you know, the 10 is the way we talk. So I went down to watch the, the doozy marathon finish yesterday. I used to paddle, and so I wanted to see how things improved. I don't think I could even attempt that race at the moment. But anyway, we were there, and I was talking to a few paddlers, and they said, you know, the, the, the sign-up for the race this year has gone down quite drastically from previous years because E. coli levels in the river have peaked. And so a number of clubs in Joburg have withdrawn their registration because of the worry of the E. coli. So we had a little uh, illustration of this happen. The kids got ice cream, and uh, we're watching the race, and they got covered in orange mess. I mean, just like head to toe, everywhere. There's just sticky, nasty. So what does dad do? Dad says, hey, there's a river out there. Go ahead and wash in the river. And of course, mom is like, don't you dare touch the river because there's a coli in the river. Just heard the conversation I just had with these paddlers. That's what I think to myself. That's exactly right. The river's contaminated. 1%, 2%, 3%. There's contamination, and I don't want to describe what kind of contamination, in that river. So for goodness sake, don't touch it and we won't drink that water. All paddlers try to keep their mouth above, above, you know, water level to finish the race. It's contaminated. That's a lie of the devil to say, well, it's just okay to disobey just a little bit. No, no, a little bit of, a little bit of disobedience leads to contamination of the whole. That's the way the Bible describes it. Another lie from the, from the, the sin of our own heart is everybody's doing it. It's famous through the centuries. Everybody's doing it, so I'll just follow the flow. And right now, I'm telling you now, if you, if you had to follow the flow of society, you will end up dead from sin. Sin has always promised, you know, pleasure and promised joy and delivers death. I hope everyone heard that. Another little lie from sin might be, God doesn't really expect me to give that up. 
I mean, there's a lot worse people out there, so it doesn't really expect me to give up uh, something. I was going to pick on a few people, but maybe I won't. Make your own application. Lots of things need to be given up. And sin is saying, no, don't give that up. That gives you all sorts of, you know, great spin-off. When God's word is said plainly, you could do better without that. You could cut that off. That whole circumcision thing, it's kind of gross to think about, but the whole circumcision picture of the Bible, cut it off. It's sin. Why would you want to keep that? Another lie from sin might be, forgive that person? Never. There's no way on earth I'm going to forgive that person. That's ridiculous. You don't understand what they've done to me. Yet the picture of Jesus is, you know, unconditional forgiveness. Another lie from sin might be, nobody will ever know. Ever been tempted with that? I could do this thing in the privacy of my own little study, locked door, screen, nobody will ever know. Another lie from sin is that we are living together, so practically married, right? It's like, you know, in the eyes of God, practically the same thing as being married while we cohabitate. Folks, all of this is worldly wisdom. It's worldly. There's no Christianity fabric in it at all. A compromise of Christian faith and a compromise of Christian witness. And alone, we will never see through the lies, the author of Hebrews says. The lies are so good. They are so deceiving. We won't be able to see through it alone. We're going to be sucked into the lies every single time. But in community... Together, let me read the phrase for the, about, you know, the sixth time this morning, exhorting one another daily, I mean, in community, in fellowship, participating with each other, we can assess that what is being fed to our mind by sin and our heart by sin is nothing but lies. Nothing but lies. Together, we can help each other take a stand and not listen to the lies, which dull our conscience you think that the lies of sin are just like petty. They're not petty. They make you dumb. Romans chapter 1. They dull your conscience and dull your brain. They make your heart, according to this passage, hard. And that's scary because a hard heart ends up in hell forever, the Bible describes. Together, we can help each other to stand and not listen to those lies. Rather, we watch and we listen and we apply the truth and we take care and we exhort all of the verbs of the passage. We urge, we encourage, which is the word exhort, to urge and encourage, to spur somebody on in the race that's described in the Bible, to finish well. Take care, brother, don't fall. Watch out, sin's a liar. Hold on to your faith. Listen to God's word. Every Christian must have word-based ministry to one another in the church, in the body, in the family of faith, however you want to describe it, and this word-based ministry to each other, this doing life together, this life group idea, this community idea, leads to the fruit of faithfulness and the fruit of perseverance, and it's not just a, like add-on, like an extracurricular. This is the main deal, extracurricular on Wednesday night, life group. No, no, no. According to this text, this is the, the life group is the main deal. Being in that place where you can have the spin-off of faithfulness and perseverance and your salvation depends on it. My salvation depends on it. 
So the antidote, I looked at the, the dictionary. What does antidote mean? Why did I use that word? All we, we all need, if we've got the same diagnosis of a heart condition of unbelief, we all need an antidote. Antidote is a remedy to counter a poisonous effect, is what I got from the dictionary. A remedy to counter a poisonous effect. And if the poison is unbelief, according to the Bible, according to Hebrews 3, then I just want to declare by way of application, we need each other. We do. Don't be like the Israelites. Listen to God's word. Submit to God's will. Learn from God's truth. And you won't forfeit the grace and the blessing of rest that's described in the New Testament. I think the application would be to put yourself in a place where you will receive God's antidote to counter the poisonous effects of unbelief in our heart. If we've been diagnosed with it this morning, why would we not all run? I mean, if we've been bitten by a snake, wouldn't we all run quickly to get the antidote? I'm hoping that our church will run quickly to get the antidote and avoid the poisonous effects of an unbelieving heart that the Bible has warned we all have. That place, I believe, is in a community of life group here at KBC. Everyone good? Let's pray. Lord, in the next few weeks, we're going to be launching um, a few new life groups and um, restirring the, the fervency of being part of a Christian community at a deeper level than just a Sunday morning. Uh, Lord, I, I, I believe with my heart that we are, we are following the, the warnings of Hebrews 3 and countless other passages that would talk about community and the importance of, of being intimately woven to each other like a family so that we can spur each other on to finish this race well, to see the deceitfulness of sin. And so, Lord, I pray that nothing would result from life groups other than health for KBC, where people are feeling a little bit vulnerable and they feel like, man, I, I don't know if I want to be, you know, airing my laundry and opening up my heart to, to strangers. Lord, I pray that you would provide peace. You'd provide God-created relationships in this body where people will feel they belong. And Lord, in life group, I pray that three things would happen, that you would be exalted, Jesus. I pray that many would be introduced to the Savior for the first time to start the journey that would be completed by you in glory. And thirdly, Lord, that the believer would be built up in their faith, that a hard heart would be, would be uh, plied and, and molded and um, needed to become softer and softer and softer, that hard heart of belief be replaced with a, with a soft heart of faith. And Lord, I pray your word would do that. Would your word be central to everything we discuss and everything we, we converse about and all the counsel that is given? all the reactions to life's goings-on, I pray, Lord, would result to nothing but faithfulness and perseverance in the life of our church people. So, Father, I think together with everyone else here, I pray this sincerely for our church, Lord, and ask for your grace and ask for your rest. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming this morning.